turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. If you have a copy of God's Word, Galatians 3, turn it on, flip it open. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, those of you moms here, those watching online, I'm glad you're here today. I was reminded of just this simple thought in regards to Mother's Day, and then we'll uh, jump into Galatians 3 right away. But just an encouragement for each of us. Uh, if you can go and see your mom today, go see her. If you can call your mom today, make sure you call her. And if you can't do either one of those, take a moment and thank God for her. All right? This is a special day. My wife reminded me of that last night as we were driving. We were just reflecting on Mother's Day, trying to find her a plant or something as a Mother's Day present. And she just reminded me. She said, Aaron, make sure you let all the ladies know and acknowledge the fact that being a mother is one of the most difficult, one of the most challenging, yet the highest calling on planet Earth. And so we appreciate y'all, and uh, thank you so much for what you do. Well, in Galatians chapter 3, continuing our series, God's Space, and uh, moms, we have something for you before you leave today as well, and so we'll, we'll come back to that at the end. Um, if you'll stand with me, wherever you are, in honor of reading God's Word. In Galatians 3, we're going to read verses 10 through 14, and it'll be on the screen behind me as well. And God's Word says this, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, because it is written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. But the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who, do, who does these things will live by them. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this morning. God, for the reason we gather to celebrate, Lord, to, to celebrate Jesus and the resurrected Jesus and what you've done for us on that cross. God, I pray now as we continue to process through these verses in this letter that you inspired through the Apostle Paul. Father, would you continue to teach us, mold us, and grow us into the likeness of Christ? Would you give us ears we need to hear a word from the throne of heaven today? God, would you give us those soft hearts that we need, Lord, not to be uh, put walls up to your word, Lord, but to receive your word and let your word change us. God, thank you so much for the gathering of believers and what we know as the church. What an opportunity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you've been driving for any length of time, you can likely remember what I like to call one of the most defining moments in your driving journey, unless you're perfect, but one of the most defining moments in your driving journey, your very first speeding ticket. I was thinking about that. For me, reflecting back on that, I'd been driving for less than a year. I was 16 years old. I was driving from Pickerington, Ohio, down to Lancaster, Ohio, to meet with some friends in my 1998 tan Chevy S10 pickup truck. I Man, I thought it was bad stuff. <laughs> Cruising down that back road there, just outside of Pickerington, Ohio, I had Taylor Swift, not modern Taylor Swift, classic Taylor Swift. Y'all know, y'all know, right? We're preaching this morning. Classic Taylor Swift blaring through the radios. If you're not a Taylor Swift fan, judge me. I don't care. And I remember, man, I didn't have a care in the world. Just cruising. The speed limit was about 55 on that road. I can take you to the exact spot, exactly where those pine trees were. And I looked up, and I saw the blue flashing lights. My stomach sank. I'm like, my mom's going to kill me. 
And I pulled over and that police officer was very kind, but about 15 minutes later, I was holding in my hand, like many of you have experienced before, my very first speeding ticket. And a couple weeks after that, I remember 16-year-old kid, I mean, I, I was recently saved, been saved just over a year, like I, I, I had to go stand before a judge in Lancaster, Ohio, the Fairfield County Courts, and stand before that judge, and he asked you, Mr. Taylor, were you speeding? Yep. And I can remember him handing that with my dad standing there with me, that $180 speeding ticket, and I was making like $6.50 an hour at Pizza Hut in Pickerington, Ohio. I mean, that was like a month's worth of pay back then. And you know, here's what we all learn when you get that very first speeding ticket. If you haven't had one yet, just give it time, you're going to get one. Here's what you learn when you get that first speeding ticket. That there's a rule of law in our nation, and there's legal requirements that come with that, Right? And when we disobey them, what happens? There's consequences. Welcome to Galatians 3. You see, here in Galatians 3, as Paul is um, writing these churches in Galatia, remember we said the Galatian churches weren't just one church, it's a, a bunch of churches that he founded in this region. He's answering that question for us again, what does it take for a person to get right with God? That's the whole like, summation of Galatians, answering that question. What does it take for a person to get right with God? And now in verses 10 through 14, what Paul is doing for these Galatian believers is he's making sure they understand the legal requirements of the Mosaic law. If you remember or you're unfamiliar with this, the Mosaic law were the um, set of demands or rules that God had laid out for his people, really outlining his holy character and who he is as God, but also exposing my need and your need for a savior. And so what Paul is doing here is he's telling us, he says, God has a standard, a rule, a law that has to be followed, and we're called to obey that. And if we don't, there's consequences. Last week, if you were here, you listened to Pastor Joe's message. The, the first nine verses of Galatians 3 looked at Abraham as this figure of uh, faith leading to justification before God. Like, if I want to get right with God, what, what Paul did is he looked back at Abraham and he said, Abraham wasn't justified by the law. Instead, Abraham was justified by faith in God. That's true. Now what he's doing in verses 10 through 14 is he says, now you Judaizers, you Galatians, you're not trying to be justified by faith. You're trying to be justified by the law. That's false. That doesn't work. That's not a way to get right with God. And so he's going to use the law to prove the law doesn't work as a means of justification or getting right before the Lord. Let me give you one phrase today, and then we're going to look at these three, three points real quick. Self-effort, hear that, self-effort to achieve right standing before God only leads to eternal separation from God. Y'all hear that? Self-effort to achieve right standing before God only leads to eternal separation from God. That's the thrust of this passage today. Let me give you three points. If you're a note taker, you can follow along with these. First, Paul in verse 10 confronts false teaching yet again. Look at what he says. For all who rely on the works of the law are what? You're under a curse. That's some pretty strong language because it's written. He's, he's quoting the law here. He says, everyone who doesn't do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Nine weeks we've been in the book of Galatians and Paul continually confronting the Judaizers, the false teachers that were leading these believers astray. What were they teaching? Acts 15 verse 1 was the historical event. They said you have to have faith in Jesus plus you have to be circumcised. 
It's faith in Jesus plus following the Mosaic law. Let's put it in modern terms. Judaizers said Jesus is not enough. They came back into Galatia after Paul left, after planting these churches, and they said Jesus is not enough. You have to be faith in Jesus plus you're tied to the law for your salvation. Friends, listen, Joe talked about this last week. I want to hit it again. This is a mindset that runs rampant in the Western church, the global church still today. How, do, how does this pan out for us sometimes? Um, it's Jesus plus you have to be baptized. That's not true. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Baptism is an obedience step, not a salvation step. It's Jesus plus you have to speak in tongues. That's evidence of the Spirit in you. That's a lie from the pit of hell. That is not true. That's not an evidence of your salvation. It's Jesus plus I have to be part of a certain denomination to be saved. That's not true. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Those Southern Baptists rock. Rock on, Team, team Southern Baptists. Okay? It's never Jesus plus something. Let's just say it again. John 14, 6. Jesus is the way. It's not your baptism that makes the way. It's not your denomination. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. Salvation's only in Jesus. We're all on the same page on that this morning. It's only Jesus. When he died on the cross, his death was sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God for you and I. When he resurrected, his resurrection was sufficient to secure you an eternal home in heaven with him forever. If you ever do anything else or try to do anything else to add to the finished work of Jesus, it's insufficient to save you. Jesus is sufficient. And moms are awesome. That's my Mother's Day plug in this message today. <laughs> now, I love what Paul does here. In order to prove his point in verse 10 that Jesus is sufficient and the law isn't, he uses the law. I was thinking about that this week. You ever told your kids something? Like you told them you were going to go somewhere, you are going to do something, and then you end up like changing your mind or plans change, like something happens. And what do they say to you? Yeah, but you said. <laughs> you told me. That's exactly what Paul does with the Galatians. He's like, all right, y'all think the law is going to save you? Let me tell you what the law actually says. Let me tell you what your law actually tells you. And what does he do in verse 10? He's quoting Deuteronomy 28, 58, which says What? says the law is a set of demands or requirements from God, God's standards set forth. And if you don't keep everything written, as my translation, your Bible might say, if you don't keep all of it, you're cursed. I don't want to be cursed. <laughs> he says, you are cursed. If you don't do all that the law of God requires, Deuteronomy 28, 58, you are cursed. What does it mean to be cursed? It means you are under God's judgment and you're not right with him. If you break part of it, you're guilty of all of it. The only way for you and I to be right with God by doing it ourselves, by following the law of God, is if we keep the whole thing entirely. I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna give, let me clue you in on something. We talk about this. You can't. It's why you need Jesus. If we could, Jesus would have never had to come. But the law was meant to show us how holy our God is, how sinful we are and how much we need him. James, the half-brother of Jesus in James 2.10, he emphasized this very same thing. Look what he says. It'll be on the screen. He says, for whoever keeps the entire law, and then look at this little next phrase right in the middle, yet you stumble at one point. Man, I've kept everything. But I mean, I just got this little thing over here. What's James say? You're guilty of it all. The law of God demands our perfection. 
This is what Paul is trying to explain to the Galatians to buck up against the Judaizers. Friends, think about this. I've been, me and Joe were talking about this a few times this week. Do you realize there's no such thing as like kind of guilty? There's no such thing as like kind of innocent. You either are or you aren't. Yeah. Think about it this way. Let's imagine that I came to your house tonight. I pulled up and I came in your driveway. You, you peeked out the window. You saw it was me. And so you weren't, you came outside and uh, out of the back of my car. Uh, I just brought a friend of mine, a friend of mine. What was his name? Steve. Steve will come walking up, knock on your door, say, hey, I need a favor. Steve's a friend of mine. Uh, we've been friends for a really long time. He's here in town. He's only going to be here one night. Um, I'm not going to be around. He needs a place to stay just for the evening. Is that cool with you? Like, he's a great guy. I think he'll really enjoy his company. He's been a great friend of mine forever. Maybe because you trust me, you would say yes, right? And so as Steve goes back out to his car to get his bags... I pull you to the side and you say, hey, I just need to tell you one thing. Just one thing real quick. Um, Steve murdered five people. <laughs> How many of y'all would be like, oh, no, no big deal. No big deal. No big deal. No big deal. You'd say, Aaron, take Steve with you. <laughs> he ain't coming. Now imagine this. I leave. I take Steve with me because you're not nice. And I leave in my car with Steve. This is hyperbole because I want us to understand this point. I leave in my car and I show back up 30 minutes later. But I have another friend with me. So I still got Steve because y'all won't take him. So I got to keep Steve. This time I, I bring John with me. And John's in the back of my car. And I say, hey man, it's a similar scenario. John just showed up. He needs a place to stay tonight. I'm not going to be around. You won't keep Steve. Will you keep John? He's a good friend of mine. We've been friends for a really long time. I think you're really going to enjoy his company. And John, you say, yeah, yeah, yeah no big deal. Uh, John can stay here. So as John goes back to the car to get his bag, I pull you aside. <laughs> Hyperbole, people. I said, hey, just so you know, John's murdered one person. Would you be like, oh, no big deal. Steve had murdered five. <laughs> You'd say, no, take them both with you. Why? Because there's no such thing as kind of guilty. You wouldn't say that Steve is more guilty than John. They're both guilty. That's, that's, that's Paul's point here. That's what James is getting across to us. You're either totally guilty or you are totally innocent. It's not one or the other. The law demands the same. And so James says, if you just break one little point, you're guilty of the whole thing. That's why it's insufficient to save you. Because we can't meet its demands. It's impossible. So Paul confronts that right out of the gate. The law is insufficient to save, no matter what the Judaizers teach you. Logically and practically, it just doesn't work. So what's he confront next? Point number two. Verse 11, false understanding. He says, now it's clear that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. Let me emphasize this again. What's the whole goal of the letter? The goal of the letter is to answer that question, how does somebody get right with God? That's that theological word, if you like big Bible terms. It's called justification. How am I justified or made right before a holy God? Well, what's Paul tell us here in verse 11 of Galatians 3? He says, it doesn't happen by the law. He's saying the same thing to us over and over and over. Why? Because we're hardheads. You ever had to tell your kids something 13 times before they get it? Sometimes on the 14th you get lucky. That's how Paul has to deal with these believers. He says, I'm just going to keep telling you and telling you and telling you so that hopefully by time number 14 we get it. He says, the law can't save you. So if that's not where my justification or right standing with God comes from, where does it come from? 
Again, he's going to use the law to prove his point. How do I get justified before God? What's he say in verse 11? Righteousness or right standing before God comes through faith. It's interesting here. Paul's quoting the Old Testament again to prove his point. He's not using some uh, other letters that he had previously wrote or something that John had written down or maybe something Peter said. He says, no, no, no. Let's go back to the books you say you follow. Righteousness, right, standing with God comes through faith. Now think about this for a second. Do you realize most faith systems in our world that do exist or have existed fall into one of two categories. In, in pursuit of righteousness, which most faith systems, that's what we're pursuing is righteousness, right standing with some sort of creator. They can fall into one of two categories. Category number one is this. It's a works-based faith system. If I do these things, teaching the Judaizers, if I do this or enough of this or enough of this in a row, then God will be pleased with me. That's what I'm seeking is to be right with a God. So works-based says if I do enough of the right things, then God will be happy with me. Uh, uh, two weeks ago on a Saturday, I had a conversation with two people from a different faith system. I'm not going to say which one it was. And I asked them point blank. I said, how do I get right with God according to what you believe? Your faith system, how would I right now get right with God? Here's exactly what they told me. Pray daily. That's a good thing. Help the poor. Uh, they said, do good things. Attend our worship gatherings faithfully. And then they, they kind of put a little bow on top. They said, and overall, just be a good person. I said, okay, that's great. I said, so if I do those things, I'll be right with your God. They said, yes. Then I asked a follow-up question. Hey, this is a good follow-up question to ask when you're ever having a conversation with somebody from a different faith system. If I do those things, is it guaranteed that I'm right with your God? You know what they said? No. No. No matter how much good you do, it's not a guarantee that you'll be right with our God. At the end of the day, he'll decide. Friends, there's a tension that you live in with a works-based faith system, trying to get right with God based on your works, is you're never sure if you're good enough. Right? Because you live in that balance scale. Do my good works outweigh my bad works? Will the God look favorably upon me or will he judge me severely? I'm never really sure because I can't see the cosmic balance scale. And works-based faith systems will always leave you living in fear. Some of y'all grew up in those. They will leave you living in fear. Can I lay my head to sleep tonight knowing that I did enough to make God happy or did my bad things outweigh my good and if I die in my sleep, I'll be separated from him forever? That is a terrifying existence. Works-based faith is a perpetual cycle of fear. Secondly, think about this with works-based faith systems. Technically, your good works can never outweigh your bad works. You realize that? Your good can never outweigh your bad. Let me give you an example of this. I don't do a lot of object lessons, but I think this will help you this morning. Imagine here for a second, I got three bottles of water here. And I, brand new, where's Joe? Come here, Joe. If I gave Joe this bottle of water, brand new, listen to it here. All right, it's brand new, okay? This isn't a trick. 
Let's say I poured that in there. That's a clean bottle of water, right? We all agree with that? Take a drink. You saw me pour it in there. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. <coughs> Take a drink. <laughs> now watch. You're good. Thanks. I just sneezed in that, right? We all saw that, COVID. <laughs> now what if, this is still my clean bottle of water. What if I add more? Would you drink it? Well, I added more clean water. What if I add more? Would you drink it? I mean, I added more clean. What if I went and got a whole brand new bottle of water and I cracked it open and I had a bunch of clean water and I started pouring it in here? Would you drink it? No. Why? Because I sneezed in it. Do you see why a works-based faith system will never work? Because no matter how much good you try to pour in, the bad is still there. We don't want it. So what has to happen? you got to get rid of the bad, and an exchange has to take place. I have to give Joe a new cup and a new bottle of water before he's going to want it again. Do you see God there? God says, Look, the bad is in there. And no matter how much good you try to pour on top of it, it's still there. we got to do an exchange here. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin for us. That what's going to happen? That we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. It's the paradox of the Christian faith where it says, I'm bad, Jesus is good. I've got to exchange my bad for his good so that God will look favorably upon me again. Do we see it? Paul says, Judaizers, no matter how hard you try, it's just not going to work. It's not possible. Now think about this. One more thing in regards to this. When we talk about a works-based faith system, where does your standard of good come from? Think about the rich young ruler when he approached uh, Jesus. He comes, he comes running up to Christ. He bows down before him, which was uncommon in that culture for a ruler to do that. And what does he say to Jesus right out of the gate? First two words, good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Notice Jesus doesn't bust out his three circles track. He doesn't walk him down the Romans road. He doesn't talk him through the ABCs of salvation. What does Jesus say to this rich young ruler? Good teacher. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at him and says, why do you call me good? Nobody's good but God. You see, what's Jesus doing for us there? He's making sure that the rich young ruler understood the standard of goodness. Friends, when we talk about goodness in our world, goodness is not relative to what your neighbor down the street did or didn't do and compared to you. Get that? Goodness is compared to God. God is good. Goodness flows from his character. So everything that is opposed to that isn't good. It's why we can't be good. It's an impossibility for us. We define goodness as, well, that guy down the street did that and I didn't do that. Therefore, I'm good and he's not. Don't compare yourself to the neighbor down the street. Compare yourself to the God in heaven. We're going to realize real fast we ain't good people. Man, this is a good Mother's Day sermon. <laughs> so what's the opposite of a works-based faith system? Or a works-based faith system, yeah. It's faith-based. It's faith-based. Exchange-based. We said it a moment ago. Right standing with God doesn't come through what I do, but what Jesus did. Jesus became sin for us so that we could become righteousness before God. 
It's this great exchange that takes place. It's, it's not based on Aaron. It's based on Jesus. Paul says it again in verse 13 of Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by doing what? Becoming a curse for us. I deserved the curse. Jesus took it. Then what's he say? Because cursed is everyone who has hung on a tree. So when I was separated from God, Jesus does a great exchange with me right here in verse 13, quoting Deuteronomy 21. It's interesting in this culture, what they would often do with a criminal is they would kill the criminal. Then they would take that criminal's body and they would hang it on a post of some kind. Why? It was an act of public humiliation. Once you were dead, they would hang your body on this post for everybody to see. And the Jews believed that that was a sign that you were cursed by God. So when Jesus hung on that cross for us, what was he doing? He was taking that curse upon himself so that I could have his righteousness placed upon myself. Jesus made the exchange. Why could he do it? Because he fulfilled the law of God perfectly. Jesus lived God's law perfectly. It's why he could exchange his righteousness for our sin. And friends, the law no longer has any power over us. We're no longer bound to it. Verse 12 of Galatians 3. But the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. What's Paul telling us here? It means we have two options as humans. You can live by law or you can live by faith. You can't have both. You don't get law and faith. You get either Jesus or your efforts to get right with God. It's either Jesus or your own self-righteous efforts. And hear me, only one comes with a guarantee. Your self-righteous efforts will never be sufficient. They never will. But when you put your faith in Jesus as the avenue of your salvation, it's guaranteed, sealed in stone, written in the book of life. You get to walk up to the gates of heaven with utmost confidence and a posture of humility. Why? Because when you stand before a holy God and He says, why would I let you in here forever? One word has to come off your lips. Jesus. And it's a guarantee. God's not going to change his mind. He's not going to change his plan. Jesus is a guarantee. Point number three, and we're almost done. True hope. What's the result? He tells us in verse 14, since I'm right with God because of Jesus, what's the result? He says the purpose, the purpose of everything he talked about, the purpose of the great exchange was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles, that's you and me, by Jesus Christ, so that we could receive the promised Spirit through faith. If you remember Genesis 12, we talked about this several weeks ago. God had promised to bless the peoples of the earth through Abraham. That blessing is now our blessing. That's Jesus that he was talking about. That through the line of Abraham, Jesus would be born. Jesus would be the blessing, not only to Israel, but to the entire world. And now we are a part of that. Because of Jesus, it's no longer Jew and Gentile. That distinction doesn't exist. It's God's family. It's God's family that we're a part of. And we have the blessing now of being eternally joined with Jesus forever. But then the guarantee, Paul ties it in there. What's he say? So that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. That's the guarantee, the seal of your promise of being part of God's family. Friends, I, I like to think about that as like a, a Tupperware container. Remember that Tupperware that your mom had growing up? I remember my grandma used to have that kind of stuff. And you'd put food in there and you're like, you clicked it closed. And nothing was going to get in. Like I remember going to grandma's house and you're like, I can't even get the sloppy Joes out of here. Because the Tupperware sealed it. When you put your faith in Jesus, he wraps the spirit of God around you and he seals it. Nothing's taking you out of the hand of God. It's not going to happen. 
You are sealed by the Spirit of God, Ephesians 1.14, and I'm going to share the gospel with you, and we're going to close. Ephesians 1.14 says that the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance. It's, it's a down payment. When you get the Spirit, He seals you, and the Spirit in you cries out that you are a child of God so that you know every night when you put your head on that pillow that if Jesus takes you while you're sleeping, that you have a guaranteed home in heaven for all eternity. You don't live in fear because it's a guarantee. Why do we know the guarantee is true? Because I got the down payment. I got the Spirit of God in me until the redemption of the possession to the praise of His glory. It's all about Jesus. Friends, let me share something with you. I, I learned this this past week. I thought this was cool. Do you know the gospel? The reason we have this hope can be science summed up in four little phrases. Bad news, worse news, good news, best news. Isn't that good? The bad news is, is that we are sinners. Romans says, for the wages of sin is death. Right? We are separated for, from God. Paul also wrote in Romans 3, um, that for all have sinned. Man, that's the bad news. What's the worst news? There's nothing I can do about it. My self-righteous efforts will always fall short of doing something about my sin. It's an impossibility. Paul talked about it in Ephesians chapter 2. There's nothing I can do about it, but what's the good news? Jesus did something about it. We talked about that, the great exchange, that he became sin who knew no sin. Jesus taking on my sin debt and your sin debt to do what? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So I can be right with God again. Jesus died for me. But what's the best news? That's available to you today. The great exchange of Jesus and your sin is not reserved for a few people. It's reserved for everybody. That is the best news in the world. And Paul talked about that in Romans 6. The free gift of God is what? Eternal life through who? Christ Jesus our Lord. It's found in Jesus. Do you know Jesus this morning? Have you ever repented of your sin and, repented of your sin and given your life to him? Has the great exchange taken place in your heart? Because if it hasn't, I'm going to tell you that today, you're dependent upon your own self-righteous efforts to get to heaven. It's not going to work. But Jesus, through simply acknowledging that he is Lord and asking him to save your soul, will do an exchange with you and guarantee a place in heaven for you. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for this morning. God, I pray that your word was an encouragement to your people today. Would it mobilize us to mission? I pray for those who maybe don't know Jesus as their Savior yet. That God, this morning would be the day where they repent of their sins, put their faith in you. God, and allow that 2 Corinthians 5.21 exchange to take place where your righteousness is placed on them and their sin is placed on Jesus on that cross. God, would you freely move among us today? Thank you so much for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.